welcome to the Nerd Party. Hello and welcome fellow Force users to Great Shot Kid, the podcast that examines the work of Star Wars creatives. I'm one of your hosts, John, and with me as always is... Mike. Hey Mike, how you doing today? I'm doing okay because I finally got my freaking Rogue One tickets. Oh, wasn't that a wonderful ordeal? Wasn't that just a delightful ordeal? Did you have an ordeal with your Rogue One tickets? Yeah, I did. I mean, first off, I was like, Rogue One tickets go on sale at 11 o'clock my time. And I'm like, this is great. I can't wait. I've got the night off. I'm all set. I'm I'm going to be uh, in a movie theater <laughs> watching Star Trek for the voyage home. Damn it. Ah. So, you know, I very quietly excused myself and I'm like, I'll just buy the tickets. And I'll sit back down. So I try to buy the tickets and I'm there for 15 minutes trying to buy tickets. I'm like, come on, come on. This is working. It's saying they're all sold out. There's no way that these are all sold out. What's going on? What's going on? Tweeting and everything. And then I'm like, screw it. I'm going to go watch the end of the movie. And then on the ride home, I got into the Fandango waiting room for like 30 minutes. Yeah. And my, my friend, like while I was driving on the expressway, my friend was on my phone. And he's like, okay. And then we get into the theater and it's like, it's saying there's an error. And I'm like, try again. And he tries it again. And he's like, oh, there it is. Oh, they haven't bought any tickets yet. So I got the best seats in my theater of choice. And that is, uh, that's it, was, great. it was pretty. Yeah, I was I was happy. I was definitely I, happy. I had a 47 minute ordeal where the app crashed while I was checking out and I had to settle for my not prime seats in a secondary theater. Um, but at the very least, I was able to navigate it. And it was it may not be my primary theater to have chosen, but uh, it was the one that was offering a 7 p.m. show that wasn't 3D. And I said, that's the one that I, that you just won my business, good sir. Thank you. Well, that, that's so. the thing, you know, I mean, like, and, and we, we can get into this later on, but yeah. like, I figured like, unless you're trying to get into the, you know, IMAX laser the projector theater, you know, and you want like this specific seat, like, I mean, yeah, everyone's freaking out, but like, if you're just trying to see the movie in 2D at seven o'clock, you'll find you'll probably your first choice in 2d at seven o'clock you know well I mean, you'll find somewhere at the very least yeah the theater that i you know very you know frantically bought tickets for like right now you can get perfectly good seats in that same exact auditorium you know 24 hours later yeah so yeah the long and the short of it is i can still remember camping out sleeping on a sidewalk for episode one tickets and just that whole ordeal and just the, the the new era that that brought in. Because actually the movie theater that I saw episode one at uh, raised up their ticket prices by 50 cents uh, specifically for episode one. Yeah, and it that's, was, a, that's a standard thing. You'll see that usually like right before Memorial Day or whatever. That's when theaters raise their prices, you know. Well, it's kind of a jerk thing to do when you when you have a wad of cash and you're sleeping on the sidewalk and you're terrified of being mugged. I didn't uh, do the overnight thing because I didn't have any friends who were willing to do it with me, but I did wait in line for seven and a half hours to buy my uh, episode one tickets at McClurg Court, and I got them, which if anyone remembers, that was 
merely a week before opening day. So everyone who's like, why is it taking them so long? That yeah. It was, you know, this is like three times as much time as we had, you know, for episode one. Uh, but I, I do remember, and this was sort of like the shift where I'm like, I waited in line and I got my tickets and I'm so excited. And like, I went back to the comic book store that I used to like work at and hang out at, you know, and everything. And I came in with my tickets. I'm like, look, I got them at McClure court. I waited for seven and a half hours. And my friend's like, I bought mine on movie phone, like, you know. A half hour ago, I just called and uh, <laughs> bought my tickets, and I got them. And I'm like, "But that's not. Oh, really? You can yeah. do that? You know? Oh, but but the but the great <laughs> the great Woodstock esque stories that we all had being nerds waiting in line overnight at our local Cineplex. That's the thing. I mean, that was like with uh, Force Awakens. They started a line at the Chinese theater, and they're like, "We're not." showing it at the Chinese theater. And it's like, well, that's okay. We're not really buying tickets at the box office anyway, so what difference does it make, you know, or whatever it was. Uh, I I know I know there were people who did wait in line at certain theaters and got, you know, prime seats because of that, but they said there were like, you know, 15, 20 people in those lines. So Yeah. Well, yeah. wasn't there uh, a specific theater in L.A. that was J.J. Uh, Abrams's like preferred theater or something like that? Something where he saw the original Star Wars, so he made sure it got a special print or something. There, there was a theater. Um, I forget the theater. It's not like a, a you know well-known theater or a noteworthy theater, but it's the theater that J.J. saw Episode Four at when it first came out. So he gave them a 35 millimeter print. I think it's the only 35 millimeter print in existence, and uh, they ran it there in 35 millimeter so that J.J. could sort of rekindle the magic of his childhood. And Christopher Nolan, that's where he says he saw the movie. He said it looked great. So. Well, okay, so we're going to be talking about presentation formats of the Star Wars films today. Uh, you know, we've been talking about, you know, the different filming formats and those sorts of things. But before we get to that, the, the first question that I want to come in with is we were talking a lot about the different types of film you could shoot on, uh, aspect ratios, uh, perforations per film, IMAX versus uh, 35 millimeter versus 70 millimeter. But one of the things I wanted to ask about, and this sort of dovetails into presentation, is that Empire Strikes Back, and I believe Star Wars as well, uh, they were shot with Panavision cameras. And Return of the Jedi was shot with VistaVision. Mm, or, no. no, I'm they, pretty sure. N well, no. VistaVision is a format which was used by ILM to shoot certain effects shots and plates and everything because it's large, you know, like it, it, it allows for, it's, it's a much larger image. Okay. It's basically like it's 35 millimeter film, but it basically creates an image the size of 70 millimeter. Okay. Um, they the, use with the uh, return of the Jedi. They use something called a JDC scope. Okay. Um, like Joe Dunton cameras or whatever. It's basically referring to the lenses that they used where like if Panavision is, you know, like the Coke of anamorphic lenses, mm -hmm. JDC is like the Pepsi of anamorphic lenses in okay. a sense. And that that's what they used for uh, for Return of the Jedi. Okay, because one, one of the things that I've always had as a pet theory is that um, the, the first time that, that Return of the Jedi made an impression on me, like I... You know, in case anybody doesn't know, Return of the Jedi is actually my favorite of the original trilogy. Uh, 
there are different emotional factors that play into that. You know, it's not worth debating. Like, you know, that doesn't take anything away from Empire. I love Empire as well. But one of the things that first started swaying my opinion about Jedi was we had all grown up with Pan and Scan. And there are a lot of people who don't know anymore, really, what the the trials of Pan and Scan were. But, you know, since we're going to be talking about presentation formats, I always felt that Return of the Jedi suffered the most. And my theory became because it was the one that at the end of the credits, I noticed it said shot with VistaVision instead of Panavision, that because they had changed the way that they had filmed it, it had suffered the most from the pan and scan effect. Because when I finally saw it letterboxed, and then uh, fortunately, again, original cut on the big screen shortly thereafter, seeing the widescreen presentation of Return of the Jedi was monumentally different than what I'd been used to for, you know, 10 years, I guess, before the widescreen set came out. So would that have made a difference? Like the, the, the type of lens they shot with, would that have made a difference on the, the, the cropping for pan and scan? In this particular case, no. It, it essentially okay. created like the same image on the film. I mean, the various factors at play there are basically who's doing the pan and scan and when's it being done. Because, I mean, like I, I remember, you know, there were some, those, those the very first few transfers of, of the Star Wars movies, you know, before the technology, the pan and scan technology had really uh, evolved they were they were pretty rough and like some of the later remastered things basically when we stopped buying pan and scan and started to switch over to letterbox if you look at those later pan and scan uh masters they look a lot better you know there's a lot more sort of like panning and scanning and you know creative things like the example that i always think of is on the original videotape for empire strikes back there's the scene where uh the star destroyer is in the asteroid and you know the yes yeah the asteroid i know hits exactly the, what you're talking about yeah it hits the tower and in the original version, you see the guy in the hologram disappear when he's talking to Darth Vader when they cut inside. Because yeah, with, with his hands up on. as if something's exploding. Right. Yeah. On the original uh, pan and scan version, you don't see that. You know, it's just you. They don't. You never see that right. guy on the frame. And when I first saw the the widescreen version, I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God, that guy, he disappeared because he was on the ship and he got killed, you know. But then, like, a few years later, when they released, like, the remastered pan and scan versions, they redid that shot so that it starts on the guy disappearing and then pans over to the other guys, you know, very quickly. So you see that but you know so there's different stuff that can be done creatively i mean there's there's a lot of people who would take like a very hands-on approach i remember hearing about like pulp fiction you know they had to do a pan and scan version and tarantino did it himself and you know the the colorist or the pan and scanner you know who was doing the job you know talked about how you know there were some things that some fixes or whatever that tarantino had in mind which were pretty radical you know in terms of uh technique and they're the type of things which you know unsupervised the the colorist would never think of doing in a million years but the director is like this is the best way to do it and it was like very freeing in a sense i I, i'll relay the story of my father god rest his soul he used to do it just to get under my skin where he would purposely buy the pan and scan of something like the Star Wars movies. He'd buy the pan and scan version, and I'd say, well, why wouldn't you get the the widescreen? Get Mm -hmm. the widescreen. And my dad would say, 
And he knew this got under my skin. He said, well, I don't like them cutting off the top and bottom of the picture with those black bars. Yeah. And I would say, that's not what they're doing. And he knew I couldn't help myself. I would start arguing the point with him again. And I like that. So basically all that to say that presentation matters. There's a, there is somebody who worked hard to frame those shots to make it look a certain way, to color time it, to make everything come across. So with presentation... Can I add something yeah. about the pan and scan thing? Absolutely. I mean, that, you're you're absolutely right. That's what we argued about before we had an internet. Was we would argue with people about whether yes. or not you know letterbox is the way to go. And like I remember the first time I saw it as a kid, it was on Inner Space. For some reason, <laughs> Inner Space was letterboxed, and I'm like, like I didn't want to watch the movie to begin with. Like my friend, you know, rented it, and I'm like this movie's garbage look there's he doesn't even fill the screen but then you know like i was reading a a tv guide um and and the, like tnt or someone was going to be showing 2001 and they're like we're showing it in full screen at seven o'clock and then like in the middle of the night we're going to be showing it letterboxed and it explained what letterboxing was and yeah. i read this and i'm like Obviously, they're confused here because clearly you're going to show the letterboxed version in prime time because that's the one that people are going to want to see, right? <laughs> I mean, why wouldn't you, right? Yep. And then, you know, you start hearing about it and, you know, like I remember like the blockbuster by me had the Star Wars movies in letterboxed and I rented them and I remember like taking them home and like my cousin who was a big Star Wars fan as well, I'm like... I've got these, they're letterbox, so you get to see the whole picture. It's great. And I put them in, and we start watching them. And my my uh, cousin's like, you know, I should lend you my copies because they, they fill the entire screen, you know? <laughs> well, but... But 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 let me let me just because yeah. this this leads to like every conversation that I ever had with people about like why I prefer special editions or not or whatever. My uncle was like your dad, right? Yeah. And whenever I would say like this is the way the director intended, he would say you're not you're you're gaining more picture in terms of like you know the image, but you're losing resolution. And what if a director wanted you to see more detail in the image and not just, you know, the full image? But what would you do then? And I'm like, well, if that were the case, I guess I would have to go with the full screen version. And, you know, I, I put my money where my mouth was, and that's how I watched, you know, James Cameron movies, which he shot in Super 35, which is kind of a format which was designed to ease the pain of, of, of pan and scan. And, you know, that sort of philosophy from that conversation that, you know, like um, that that rebuttal to letterboxing is sort of what has led me down the path of always trying to find the best way to watch the movie from the director's perspective, what the, dir the director right. considers to be. And that that's going to influence, I think, this entire conversation that we're having now. It, it certainly is because because we're going to be focusing on presentation, and I'm glad you know I'm glad you said the the director's preferred version because we mentioned Abrams showing the 35 millimeter print at the theater where he originally saw what later came to be known as Episode Four. Abrams was did not want to do the the format switching for IMAX, okay, but it was sort of forced upon him to have you know a, a sequence in the movie that was. IMAX shot for the big IMAX screen, the actual fit, the uh, how do you say it? 1570 
Yeah, fifteen. Yeah, yeah fifteen perforations, seventy millimeter. So, so he shot it for the actual fifteen seventy. I had the good fortune of actually seeing it in that. I was disappointed that because I'm used to Christopher Nolan, mm-hmm. like Dark Knight Rises. Fifty minutes of that movie was shot fifteen seventy, yeah. and filled the whole screen was amazing to watch. If presentation matters so much, what is your stance on when studios release movies that have a a flipped, uh, you know, where they, they switch between aspect ratios? Because Abrams has fought against it so hard that in, with Into Darkness, when he was forced to release it that way, he still letterboxed the the IMAX image. See, like a... I, th- I don't think that, like, you know, it's a case of the studios being like, you have to do this. And, you know, Abrams being like, fine, if you're going to really make me. I think, like, there's, like, what Abrams sees is he's like, IMAX is amazing. You know, I have a, a chance to shoot a portion of this movie in IMAX. I think he even said, he's like, how could I turn that down, you know? And I think that it is the way that he wants it to be, you know, like his whole thing was like, not that, you know, IMAX is bad or 35 millimeters bad. It's, you know, he's like, I don't want it to be switching constantly because I think that would be distracting. And he came up with a really good solution to that in, you know, into darkness. And in terms of, you know, force awakens, his big solution is like, we're going to do it once, you know? So I think that that's perfectly fine. You know, he doesn't do it, you know, when he's at at home, you know, at the home theater, he likes to have the constant, you know, height, which I think is is reasonable because it's like a different format, whatever. But I think, I don't think there's ever been a case, at least that I'm aware of, where the aspect ratios changed against the director's will. Except for possibly uh, Dr. Strangelove. Um, that was the director's <laughs> own fault. I have he's Stanley Kubrick has no one to blame except for himself <laughs> in in that uh, regard. So yes. okay, so uh, okay, so so you're along. You're fine with the fact that Force Awakens came out at, with a 3D post conversion, as well as an IMAX sequence. I mean, in terms of that presentation mattering. Is the audience being cheated by not always having that available? Like, if somebody chooses and they go see Rogue One 3D and they only see it once and they only see it in 3D, but the director says 2D is what I prefer, isn't it going against, shouldn't the director's preference always just be the final version that they release? I mean, that's what I think, you know, I mean, that's obviously not the case. I mean, Force Awakens, it was a big problem because, you know, while you were lucky enough to see, you know, the movie in 1570 IMAX, you know, I I had to drive down to Indianapolis. I drove like four hours down to another state, you know, to see it, you know, and if I wanted to see it in IMAX anywhere else, if I wanted to see that aspect ratio expanding, for one thing, it wouldn't expand as much, you know, but also, um, yeah, it is a post-converted 3D. And, and, you know, Abrams has said, well, you know, he's kind of taken a middle-of-the-road stance and saying, like, there's some things in it that I like. You know, he has 
gone on record as saying that he doesn't like 3D. He prefers 2D. So I want to see Force Awakens in 2D IMAX. And yeah. unless you live in Indianapolis or Washington, D.C. or like eight other places in the country, you don't have that opportunity. Well, I had to suffer IMAX 3D because the one I went to only showed IMAX 3D, but it was laser proje- projection. So, yeah, you know, well, that's that, nice. that that's counts nice. for something. Okay, but, you know, in, in terms of you know, th- this presentation, do you think that people are losing out at all by not, I mean, is it, is it something where you feel that they are actively losing out by not being able to see it in a certain format? I think so far with the star Wars movies, the answer is no. You know, I mean, there are times where directors are very vocal, you know, like whether it's Alfonso Cuaron, you know, with gravity or James Cameron with Avatar, where it's like, we've spent a lot of time on the 3D, and the 3D is the way to go, and it really adds to the experience and everything. But there's lots of times where, you know, because I'm always trying to figure out, like, what the director preferences and see it in that format. And, like, Storks came out, you know? And uh, that was a 3D, you know, animated movie from the director of Neighbors. And, you know, he's never made a 3D movie before. And I tweeted him. I'm like, should I see it in 3D or 2D? And he's like, if you like 3D, the 3D is great. And I'm like, so then 3D? And he's like, yeah, if you want to see it in 3D, that's cool. You know, and, and I have a feeling that that's kind of how... Uh, JJ and, um, you know, uh, Gareth Edwards and everything and everyone feels about these movies because none of them have really come out and been like, 3D is gonna blow your mind. Like, I, I honestly don't know what Gareth Edwards has to say about the 3D in Rogue One. I've heard him talk about the 3D in Godzilla, which was something along the lines of, uh, we shot the movie and then converted it to 3D. And then when I watched the 3D version, I was like, damn, that looks really cool. So definitely, so, you know, go see it in 3D. But it's not like he was like, this is designed for the 3D experience, you know? And, and I get the impression that the same is true for Rogue One. Okay, so, but but the thing is, uh, Lucas, very famously, uh, he later abandoned it, I guess, because of the reception. But episode one was re-released to theaters in 3D. Yeah, he and, didn't abandon it because of the reception. He abandoned it because he sold his company. Well, and then Fox is like, we're not releasing these movies. Yeah. <laughs> or something along those lines. Who knows exactly how, how it how it went down. But episodes two and three are done. They've been shown. Uh, they, they showed them, I, I guess, what they did like... It was a, like one of the celebrations, wasn't it? Yeah, they showed all three of them at one of the celebrations. And then they also showed episode two... At like a retrospective for like Richard Edlund or something like that, or Dennis Muren, I think. I think Dennis Muren. Yeah, it would have been Muren probably. Muren, yeah, because he he worked on the the three D conversion along with uh, John Knoll. So what what's your stance on that then? Where somebody comes back many years later, because that would have been okay. So it would have been four years ago, I guess that uh, that episode one was released in three D. About yeah, it, it was four it was five, twenty. It was four, it was, it was, Five 2012. It was January of 2012, so almost yeah. five years ago. Almost five years ago. Means... I remember because I took my daughter for her fifth birthday. It, it was a treat for her to see that in a theater with me because she was a little Star Wars fan at the time. And they were going to do one a year, so in an alternate reality, this last January, we would have seen a, a 3D release of Empire Strikes Back in theaters. 
What's your feeling on that? Because again, we're talking about presentation. Somebody comes back decades later or, you know, a decade later and says, well, I've, uh, I've gone ahead and I've, I've converted it to 3d and I, I want you to see it in 3d now. Like what's your stance on something like that? It's the same as my stance on special editions where it's like if George Lucas, you know, he's the, the, the creator of these movies. And if he says, I want to convert it to 3d and I want people to see it in 3d, then that's what I'm going to do. Like I'm desperate for them to release episodes one, two, and three on 3d on Blu-ray. I would buy those in a heartbeat. You know, I, I would actually be very anxious to see those in in 3D because I remember the thing about seeing the episode one 3D version was that the effects stuff, which was very, you know, layered blue screen heavy, mm-hmm. looked fantastic. And everything else was kind of like, Meh. It, it, and two it, and three shot so much green screen yeah. that I imagine everything pops in those movies. Yeah, I mean, I, one of the criticisms of the episode one conversion is that it, it seems like they were doing it sort of quickly and on the cheap and one of the things that you do when you do it quickly is you don't really make it very dynamic and there's like a lot of shots in there where it's like that's technically 3d but there's barely any separation you know and from from what i've heard they really stepped it up with two and three two and three are a lot better in terms of their conversions but yeah i mean i would totally like i liked the conversion of episode one i thought it was fine even though it is rather subtle and uh, I, I, yeah, I would definitely want to see all of those in 3D, especially since Lucas is like, I want to see it. I mean, I was kind of having sort of a crisis when he was talking about, you know, doing five and six, because I'm like, yeah, I don't think that Urban Kirshner and uh, Richard Marquand are going to have much input into that 3D conversion. And honestly, I mean, I don't know much about Richard Marquand, but I think Urban Kirshner would kind of be like, Oh, this is kind of dumb, you know, but whatever. At least it's on the big screen. Well, yeah. give it, given the uh, if anybody has read the making of Return of the Jedi by J.W. Rensler, you'll know that Marquand's involvement sort of ended after the rough cut. And he sort of said, OK, I'm done. And yeah. Lucasfilm said, yeah, OK, thanks. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, he did have his own cinematographer on there and the two of them crafted a, a look for that movie. They did. And and who knows what a conversion to 3d would do to that look, you know? What? Yeah. Well, I mean that that's very, very true. I mean, and to get back to what we were talking about with, you know, shooting with the, you know, Panavision versus VistaVision versus whatever, would that have affected the cinematography at all? The lenses that you're using? It, in terms of like converting it to 3d, well, no, not well. Yes, in terms of converting it to three D and part two, in terms of how the films would have looked, because Empire looks very different from Jedi. Yeah, well, I mean, lenses. Yeah, for sure, lenses are going to have an impact on the way your movie looks. I mean, I don't really know what lenses were used. I mean, they both they all used anamorphic lenses, but right. you know, there's a million different types. You know, there's Panavision. There's you know, like. Panavision Primo and C series and I'm I don't know what any of these things are but they all are things you know and you know it, they do like these camera tests before each movie where they you know try a bunch of different lenses with a bunch of different film stocks in order to come up with a look for the movie so I mean surely two different cinematographers with two different directors are going to come up with two different looks for their this, this movie okay but in in terms of effects-heavy films, 
what impact like are they coordinating those lenses for the the plate shots the 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 stuff where they're shooting the uh you know the the, the miniatures and stuff like that is that something where they have to use the same like how involved is the cinematographer on the effects shots because i think that's something that's always been a little fuzzy to star wars fans i i know that at least to me is is the cinematographer there when they're shooting the miniature or they're shooting the background plate that's been hand painted you know for for empire and jedi are they sitting there on set or do they just say use this lens and it'll look okay yeah no i don't think that they're usually sitting there on set usually that you'll see like a credit for like visual effects director of photography i believe like dennis murin you know like i think if you look at dennis murin's credits it actually says like dennis murin asc you know asc yeah. is the little thing that they have for like the American Society of Cinematographers because he's he is a cinematographer himself you know he's just a guy who shoots miniatures instead of people or whatever yeah. and you know I, I think I, I I mean I'm sure it's different for every movie and I'm sure like the level of involvement is is different on a case-by-case basis my guess as to what normally happens is you know the director of photography will say like these are the lenses that I'm using. This is the look that I'm going for. And, you know, he'll have these conversations with the visual effects people, and the visual effects people will say, okay, this is what we need to do in order to replicate his style. You know, mm -hmm. there might be certain times where they're like, okay, you're going to have, you know, this thing blow up in the foreground and this ship fly by. And in order for us to do that, you need to use this particular lens or this particular film stock, you know, so there might be some of that going on, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think definitely more sort of like the visual effects trying to uh, adapt their style to the cinematographers instead of the other way around. Okay. So before we, we go on to, to Rogue One presentation and, and you know, and, and wrap things up, what is your position on David Tattersall, who was the cinematographer on the prequels? Do you think that as a cinematographer, he was very successful because he was able to shoot things that blended with so many background plates and enhanced shots? Do you think he's any sort of trailblazer or do you think that he's somebody who did what was asked of him and it, it got done? I mean, I don't really know anything about that in terms of like, you know, the innovation or whatever. I know that there's definitely, you know, like a, a shift and there's a lot of people, a lot of cinematographers who are like, this is not, you know, I mean, like there were two big ones where Mauro Fiore won the Oscar for best cinematography for Avatar. And then Emmanuel Lebeski won uh, for Gravity. And and there were a lot of people who were saying, like, they didn't shoot anything. That's not cinematography. They basically lit a blue screen and then had some people walk in front of it. And then a bunch of animators created a look for these movies. And then they're getting an Oscar for their cinematography when basically yeah. they, like, threw a light on some dude and called it a day. And, I mean, I can definitely see that. But at the same time... I mean, how much of cinematography is what's done on the set and how much of it is creating a look? Because I know, like, especially in the case of, you know, Lebeski with Gravity, even though that movie is almost, you know, 
100% CGI, he was, you know, there reviewing everything with the, you know, the visual effects guys. And really, he's the one who sort of dictated the look of that film in the same way that he would dictate it if he was, you know, talking to a bunch of people, you know, putting up lights on a set instead of putting up lights on a virtual set in a computer. And and I get the impression that Tattersall was really doing that sort of thing and that, you know, that was, you know, he was probably one of the first people to, to really have that task. And I think that he's fine. I, you know, it's weird because, like, you look at episode one, which was shot on, on you know, anamorphic 35 millimeter and I just look at that movie, which, you know, I had the most, you know, real stuff in it, too. And I'm like, yeah, it looks fine. But then when he switches to digital for Attack of the Clones and Return of the Jedi, I'm like, wow, this stuff really pops. Like, he gets much bolder in terms of his use of color and everything mm-hmm. like that. Oh, and I agree. I, I think that he's a lot better, you know, with that medium, with the the uh, the the digital medium than he is with the 35 millimeter medium. Although I, I do really love, he, he's the guy who shot Con Air. And I really love the way that that movie looks. Oh, Con Air looks beautiful. I've always yeah. loved the way that, that film looks. That's, that's, oh man. All right. Well, hey, we can do Con Air for an episode somewhere oh, down yeah. the line, which oh. I am, I am all about. But that brings <laughs> us to, you know, we're talking about presentation, cinematography. And, you know, again, something that's been said many times by, by plenty of people is that what we've seen of Rogue One up to this point has looked gorgeous, has has looked absolutely wonderful. It looks framed beautifully. The colors are rich and vibrant. It it looks very real. When people go to see Rogue One, there are going to be a ton of formats for them to choose from. Yeah. I remember... Back in the good old days of 1999, where if you were going to see a movie or if you were showing a movie and you called up the distributor and you're like, I need a print of this movie, they would drop off a print and then you would (laughs) run it through a projector. You'd have to pick whether the lens was, you know, spherical or anamorphic, which sometimes that got tricky. Not really at all. And then that was it. You it called it a day now there's like if you look at like when the hard drives are shipped to movie theaters and it comes with a spreadsheet with all of the different picture formats all of the different sound formats all of the different captioning formats and there are times where there can be you know 15 different versions of a movie and i'm not even exaggerating okay so you better pick the right one, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, having seen Interstellar at a uh, movie theater the first time I saw it, I I still adored the film, but they botched that presentation big time. So, yeah. with with presentation, they ship Rogue One out. Everybody's bought their tickets. Yeah. Who has won the lottery? Who picked the right <laughs> format? I mean, it's there's like degrees, you know, and I, and I mean, and this is this is part of the problem. I mean, everyone was kind of, you know, pointing this out, like when the Jungle Book came out, yeah. and John John Favreau got on like Reddit or something, and he's like, okay, there's 15 different versions of Jungle Book. Which one should you see? Well, I would pick this format. 
but if that's not available, go with this. But if that is combined with this, then I would suggest going with this. And then he like listed all these things and these things and people are like, should a director really have to make a list of like five different formats in descending order and Good you question. know as a guide for how to see a movie? You know, can't you just walk into a theater and buy a ticket? Uh, and and actually, b- before we proceed, the director is overseeing all of those different formats. Correct? He is yeah. he watching every single version of this, or is he watching a snippet and saying, "Looks fine, keep going. Looks fine, keep." Reds are off. Keep, you know, change it. (laughs) I'm sure each director is different, you know, but I mean, I think there's like probably one version which, you know, you kind of like get solid and that's sort of like your your master. And then everything else is sort of based on that. It's like tweaking it in one way or another in order to, you know, take advantage of what this specific format has to offer. And certainly, you know, there's probably like spot checking and everything that, that goes on in that but I think it, it a lot of it depends on the director and how hands-on they are, you know? Uh, I mean, like, I know with, like, John Carter, you know, where Disney did, like, a 3D version of the movie, and Andrew Stanton is like, I had nothing to do with that. I don't care about that. You know, like, he did the 2D version, and he got that exactly the way he wanted, and then he handed it off, and he's like, whatever, guys, that's your thing. So wouldn't the argument then be that the only time anybody's really going to see the director's intended version would be Blu-ray? Because that's going to be the primary format, like that's how they're going to format it for the release on Blu-ray? I mean, no, not really, because Blu-ray is going to be reformatted too to take advantage of what people's monitors are capable of, you know? Mm. I mean... People at home, you know, their TVs react differently than than they do on the big screen. And not to mention that, you know, there's 4K and 2K and high dynamic range and standard dynamic range and 2D and 3D. And ever since they got rid of uh, THX certification processes on the DVDs, I'm just completely lost. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's definitely confusing, you know. And I mean, like we were saying, sometimes there's directors who come out and they're like, this is the way to see the movie, you know, but lots of times, you know, like for for every, you know, director like, uh, you know, James Cameron, who's like, you know, see this in IMAX 3D, that's the only way to see it, you know, high frame rate or whatever it is. There's someone like Shane Black, who like I was listening to a podcast where they're like, um, we're seeing this movie like he, he was like being interviewed after a screening and he's like, they've done amazing stuff here. They install a new sound system and the projector is great and it's got 4k and everything. And he's just like, wow, that is so boring. I do not care about any of that stuff. You know, <laughs> like he just, he's like, whatever, you know, it is what it is and you know, they'll figure that out and whatever, you know? Okay. So it really depends on the director, you know? And I don't know, you know, who knows where, where like, Gareth Edwards falls, you know, and, and what it is. But, I mean, we can speak to the different formats and explain what they are, and, you know, people can kind of decide what they want, I guess. You well, know I mean, mean? Everybody's, everybody's sort of cast their lots by this point, probably. <laughs> probably, but, you know, for, <laughs> but, for your uh, second viewing, though. Yeah, because, <laughs> look, you're going to see it a second time. All right, so we're going to have digital presentation, which is obviously going to be, it's a hard drive and it's projected, and... I believe you mentioned to me one time Disney releases 2K versions to the theaters, not 4K. Is that correct? 
Generally speaking, they do. Although with Rogue One, I think we have a pretty good shot at at getting it in 4K because um, the first two trailers were released in 4K. The third one was not. The third one was just 2K. But it's very, very rare that they would master a trailer in 4K if they weren't mastering the movie in 4K. Certainly it was shot in like 5 or 6K or something like that. So the image quality is there. The question is, a lot of it comes down to budget, and especially with like the visual effects in terms of like what uh, you know you want to render them in. But I think that there's a pretty good shot that this movie is going to be released in 4K. So, and any digital projector will be able to do that. Like I, I, I'm not going. A person is not going to buy a digital theater ticket and go sit down and see you know DLP, you know projection equipment. And the movie's been released in 4K. They don't have to worry that they're going to suddenly see a 2K version. Or is it going to be downgraded? And it, what would happen if it were? No, I, there, there is definitely a chance. I mean, I would say probably at this point in time, the majority of projectors out there are 4K. But there are certainly 2K projectors out there as well. And uh, a lot of times what uh, theaters will do is, like, on their larger screens, they'll have 4K projectors. But then when you start getting into the smaller, you know, auditoriums, uh, they they go with 2K because basically 4K is not needed. And there is an actually a really interesting thing which I saw on Twitter a, a couple days back uh, regarding um, f- various presentation formats from uh, Steve Yedlin, who is the cinematographer on episode 8, where he gave like a little talk to, I guess, other cinematographers about, you know, like formats and what is needed and what isn't and what we're actually seeing and what, you know, needs to be upgraded or doesn't need to be upgraded. And one of the points that he was making is like, with a lot of this stuff, it's overkill. And, you know, everyone's pushing 4K, 4K, 4K. But if you start doing the math and crunching the numbers and just looking at things, it doesn't really matter. 2K is perfectly fine, you know? And, uh, yeah, I mean... I would say most theaters are going to be 4K projectors, you know, I mean, uh, but especially at this point in time, you know, but there will be 2K projectors out there. Although, can you tell the difference? I don't know. Okay, so, okay, there's digital. There are going to be a handful of film prints out there, but most likely nobody's going to encounter them, correct? I don't know if they're going to release any 35 millimeter prints. Usually with like a a movie of this size, there usually are a few that are made just for those rare theaters, which are not capable of showing digital. There's still like a few, let's say drive-ins or whatever that need to do it. You're probably not going to encounter that. Although they are making 1570 uh, IMAX prints for a select few locations. And uh, one or two of those locations are right near me, which is a uh, marvelous thing. Yeah, so. I guess. Uh, but, I mean, here's the thing, though, right? Like, why? I mean, like, <laughs> I, I think for a lot of those venues, it's like, well, we don't have digital projection. You know, and that's kind of like what it, what what happened last year with Episode 8, where it's like, if they don't have a digital projector, then they give them a film print. But there's, like, a lot of places like, you know, Navy Pier here in Chicago where they had a film projector and they were still, I guess, required to run it digitally. You okay, know? so so just a, as a question then, th- there's no format switching in this. 
correct? No, no, there there isn't. Yeah, so it's just going to be straight, at least as far as we know, it's just going to be a straight 2.39 to 1 image throughout, just like all of the other Star Wars movies aside from Episode 7. So if you just go to a, if you go to a legit IMAX theater, you're going to see something that is essentially letterboxed on screen the same way that Inception was. Because I remember going to see Inception excited because they, I, I went and I saw it in an IMAX theater and then there was no format switching. And I said, oh, well, okay, all right. Well, I mean, I still loved it, still thought it was great, still looked wonderful, but okay, I thought in, it was going to switch. That's Inception had, had format switching, although if it was digital, it wouldn't go all the way no, up. No, it didn't. Oh, I'm sorry. You know what? I'm getting my uh, in-movies mixed up. Oh. Yes, I was right. <laughs> I was right. Yes. Finally, in a discussion between Schindler and Mills, <laughs> I was correct. No, I you, was correct. You're correct rather frequently. You were correct about the uh, the Janine Garofalo thing in Rock and Roller Coaster. You darn tootin'. <laughs> no, yeah, okay, Inception. I was thinking Interstellar. Yes, no, you no, are right. No, no, Interstellar, was a lot of... Yeah. All the time, yeah. No, you were right. It would be like Inception, where it does not switch. It's just letterbox throughout the entire thing, yes. Like yeah. That. So 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 if you go to the IMAX 3D laser projection at the and I'm using a DC Metro theater here at the Smithsonian Udvar Hazy Center. Yeah. It's going to be letterboxed on that screen the entire two hours and 13 minutes. Yeah. Unlike Force Awakens, where there was one scene in the movie where you would suddenly be seeing more picture in IMAX. Yeah. That's not the case here. No matter what theater you go to, you're going to see the the same exact framing, the same exact image everywhere. Okay. Do you have a theory as to why they backed off of that? Because with Force Awakens, you know, hey, there here's a big thing we have we're switching format. It's cool. Why would they have backed away for this? Do you think was that a director thing? I I haven't read anything indicating that Edward said, "No, I'm I refuse to do it." why the switch i i think yeah i think it is a director thing you know it, it's weird because he's using the cameras which are branded as like digital imax cameras now you know he's using like the same cameras that they're using on like guardians of the galaxy or civil war and where they do the switch and they're like look it's shot in imax but he he shot it in anamorphic which is very rare well this is the only time that he's they've ever used anamorphic for this camera because uh you know they, they use those special 70 millimeter anamorphic lenses which were used for hateful eight you know mm -hmm. and by doing that you're using the full the full height the whole time there's no like you'd basically have to take that special lens off of it in order to get the image to go higher or lower, if anything, what you could do if you wanted to open up the image is you, there's more information on the sides, which is being cut off intentionally. But they could so actually make could it go for wider the, if they wanted to, but not taller. Like Hateful Eight was 2.79 to 1? Yeah, I think it's 2.76 to 1. 2.76, okay. Yeah. That's how that's how this movie was shot. Like if you were to just take the raw image off of the 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 camera, it is two point seven six to one. But then they're matting it on the side, so you're not seeing what was shot on the left and right side, and you're not supposed to. 
um, and and they're they're matting it down to two point three nine to one, which is standard. But like if you look at uh, some of that behind the scenes footage, like there was that one like reel that they showed at like celebration or something like that, you can see like Gareth Edwards looking at like a monitor, like in one shot, and you can see the framing. You can see how wide it is on the little display, but you can also see like two little lines on the left and right which are showing like this part of the screen is not going to be seen you know huh. it's pretty interesting well, i would be so cool if on blu-ray they decided to say oh you know what you're going to get 2.76 to 1 just for kicks i mean i mean i i don't i don't want a buffy the vampire slayer tv show open up the matting see them placing the stake on but the but that's uh, that's like know, what is what it frame. would be really though you know okay so, okay, so so basically, I mean, we're, we're sitting here, we're making a big point of all the different presentation formats. So we, we've got digital, you're most likely not going to run across film. IMAX is going to be sort of a gimmick. 3D is a post-conversion. They didn't shoot it in 3D. What other formats do we have? Well, I mean, the big thing now, which is really starting to come into play, both in terms of IMAX and then, you know, Dolby Cinema, is laser projection. You yes. know, this is this is the big new thing. Like in my area, I live in the third biggest city in 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 America. There were no laser projectors. Well, there was one laser projector for uh, the Force Awakens. Now we've got five, um, yeah, which is pretty pretty great. And you know, the the Dolby Cinema thing, that's like you know, sort of like a premium format, like IMAXs. And, you know, it's, it's, you know, like basically the equivalent of like fake IMAX in terms of size. You know, usually they'll have like an IMAX screen over here and a Dolby screen over here and you can pick or choose. Um, the Dolby, they usually do 2D. Uh, some, some theaters are doing 3D for, uh, for Rogue One, but, but usually it's 2D. And the thing about about that is like the Dolby cinemas have have laser projectors which uh, allow for a much brighter image but also a much higher contrast image so like the blacks are super duper black like you think the projector is off when it's just a pitch black screen but then the whites are super duper bright and then you got you know as many shades of gray as you could possibly want in between, and also the colors are are much more vibrant and everything. It's it's a beautiful image for sure. And uh, in terms of like watching it in three D, if if a theater is playing it in three D, or if like IMAX you know is doing the three D with the laser, um, it's so much brighter that you know that that complaint that a lot of people have regarding three D being like a a dimmer image. Like that goes away. You don't have to worry about that anymore. So that's another okay. option for people for sure. And know? so with a vibrancy, you could almost argue that uh, Zack Snyder should always project his movies in that so that people don't, you know, yeah, go I, blind I, trying to see what's going on on screen. <laughs> it's true. I, I saw Batman versus Superman in laser at the Dolby 2D, and uh, we got little posters on our way in with a little quote from Zack Snyder saying like, this is the best way to see the movie. So do you think the presentation format will affect people's reception of Rogue One? I mean, this is, this is my, my, my theory on, on this stuff, you know, like 
because I mean, obviously, I, I've been a projectionist for years and years, and I've sort of like seen what people complain about and what they don't complain about, you mm-hmm. know, or what they compliment you about or what they don't compliment you about. And and I think this is the thing about it. Like, I don't think that you know most people really are going to be going into a, a presentation and saying like. Oh yeah, this is so great. Or like, mm, I'm seeing the flaws. Ooh, that image is a little dim or whatever. But I think when you go in there and you get a great presentation, there is it's almost like like umpires in a baseball game where like if they call a great game, you're not going to notice them during the game, but you know, afterwards you might think like, "Huh, there weren't any problems there," you know? I think like if even if like you have like a, a theater with like a bad sound system, you know, you're not going to necessarily put your finger on anything being wrong with it, but you might not be as fully invested in the movie, like on a visceral level as you would be if you were seeing it in a place with, you know, 7.1 or 12.1 or whatever, you, you know what I mean? It, it's right. just, I think it's, I think it's a subliminal thing for a lot of people. I mean, for me, okay. you know, it's like, I've, this, this, this was my, you know, career. This is something which I did on a daily basis. So I'm paying attention to it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm watching it on, on like a, a critical level you know, from a presentation standpoint, every time I can't help but do that. And lots of times, you know, I mean, like, (laughs) I remember, like, when I first became a projectionist, like, the assistant manager, you know, he saw me, like, the next day, and he's like, so you're going to be a projectionist, huh? And I'm like, yeah, I'm so excited. And he's like, you're never going to be able to enjoy watching a movie again. (laughs) And he's totally right. There are so many times. I mean, I just saw Arrival at like a film festival. I paid 25 bucks for this ticket and, you know, saw it a couple weeks before it came out. I was so excited and the image was super dim. The bulb just needed to be changed and it, it just ruined the entire experience for me. And I'm like, I have to see this movie again just so that I'm not annoyed by it, you know what I mean? You, you know that that actually that that's sort of uh, when I see live theater, mm-hmm. um, it's very difficult for me uh, to to lose myself in a production because I will sit there and say, ah, that person should have been moved just a little <laughs> bit stage left so that the oh he missed his mark, you know, or, or oh she's standing in the she's not quite in the light right there. Yeah, I I totally get. I totally get what you're saying, and I think that to sum it up, what Mike is saying is that you have to see Rogue One in 2D, and any <laughs> other format is absolutely worthless and a waste of your money and time. I, I believe I, that that sums it up. Yes, I'm personally because of of <laughs> Gareth Edwards's comments on 3D regarding Godzilla, I'm personally going for the 3D route for this one. Okay. You know, that's that's how I want to see it. But I really do think that it's a case and, and you know, and I think that, you know, Edwards would probably say the same thing. It's it's like, you know, IMAX is great, whatever, Dolby is great, whatever, but like it's not like if you're going to see it in just a plain old regular theater, you're getting like a, a lesser experience. In fact, I mean, you know, I know some of the equipment which is being used in some of these theaters, whether it's IMAX or extra whatever the extra extreme yeah and i can tell you that that's 
usually just a name, you know? Right. And there's just as many theaters out there which don't have any branding on them at all, where their philosophy is like, we're here to show movies, and we're not going to charge you extra for doing our jobs and showing you a movie on a big screen. We're just going to do it, and you're going to enjoy it. And, you know, you're going to come back here because we did a good job, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you have a theater that you like, if you've seen, you know, the, the, the latest, you know, romantic comedy at this theater and you've had a good experience with it, like, I don't think you need to feel like Rogue One will somehow be incomplete if you don't see it in Super Duper Extra X. You know what I mean? Right. All these things have X's in them. It's it's very... Uh, <laughs> I don't get I, you it, know, honestly. For, for somebody like myself who's a spelling and grammar uh, fiend, it drives me straight up a wall. But what does not drive me straight up a wall is what a delightful conversation this has been. I can't wait for everybody to go ahead and let us know what their experience was seeing Rogue One. We're still a little bit ways away from it. The anticipation is building. When it does happen, please, by all means, reach out to us at thenerdparty.com slash contact. Go to Great Shot Kid. Let us know what did you think of the presentation in your theater. What did you think of the film? We, we can't wait to talk about this with you. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. Like it, It's such an exciting time to know that we're going to have this, this open conversation with everybody. Uh, and so long as you're going there, we're here in the holiday season. Go to lootcrate.com slash nerdparty. Enter the code nerdparty. You'll get a discount on a fabulous subscription service that once a month sends you a box of goodies. This month's theme is the revolution. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party. Get a box from Loot Crate for the revolution. And, you know, in the holiday season, go ahead and gift somebody a subscription. They will love you for it. It's going to be great, especially seek out the geeks in your life. Get get them a Loot Crate subscription at a discount, and you've given them a gift for a year. It's going to be so much fun. Now, Mike, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Mumbles3K, and you can also find me over on Trek.fm, where I do a show called Stage 9, uh, mm. where we look at uh, the people who make Star Trek. It's basically the same exact show, only for Star Trek instead of Star mm. Wars. Mm. And uh, this week, uh, we have a, a special guest on the show, Robert Hewitt Wolf, uh, who is a writer on uh, Deep Space Nine, as well as Next Generation. But Deep Space Nine is, you know, the one where he wrote uh, numerous masterpieces. And he's yeah. got a new book coming out called or that just came out called uh, The Goblin Crown, and, and he talks to us about that. And I've got this uh, cool host over there whose name is John Mills. Huh. He yeah. sounds like a delightful guy. He he's really pretty, does. He's, he's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah I, he's I kinda, like He's kind of like the 2D version of, uh, of hosts. <laughs> oh, the superior version. Okay. I, I, I got it. I got it. I got it. That makes sense. And you, you can find me over. Look for Kessel Junkie. You'll also find me here on the Nerd Party Network co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast with Matthew Rushing. I co-host Words with Nerds with my pal Craig Sorrell. And uh, thank you, everybody, for taking this journey with us. As you can tell, we're very passionate about uh, not just how things are filmed, but how they're presented. 
Uh, thank you so much for joining us on this journey and come back next week when we take a look at the film Zero Dark Thirty shot by the cinematographer for Rogue One, Greg Fraser. Thank you.